So we're continuing in our series of the Minor Prophets. Um, and, you know, we're doing this because if you think about, like, like, your familiarity with Scripture, if you have any, often the Minor Prophets are largely, they're largely neglected, and yet they're this beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace and provision of working through kind of the full uh, work of redemptive history. So we've been having a really good time. We've made it through uh, three so far. We've hit Hosea and Amos and Joel, and we're continuing through Obadiah today. Next, uh, So before we go any farther, let, let me go ahead and pray for us, and um, we'll see what God is saying through Obadiah uh, to the Edomites. Um, God, we love you. We thank you for um, today. We thank you for a chance to come together just as we are. Lord, uh, knowing that we come into this room kind of with, if there's, if there's 60 of us in here, there are 60 different journeys that led to this moment, Lord, and there's kind of 60 different kind of questions and needs and, and realities, Lord, uh, today. And yet we also know that there is one truth and one deliverance and one hope for all. And so I pray this morning that you would uh, open our hearts, Lord, open our lives. Lord, speak to us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of your truth and word. God, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way. Lord, whether you use my words or work in spite of me, I pray that, Lord, the truth that you have for us today, the transforming work that you have for us today would, would be accomplished, God. Take these words that pass from my lips, catch them aflame in our hearts, God, and I pray that our lives would reflect that we have met with you. Lord, uh, we thank you for Jesus, Lord, the hope and life and salvation we have in him. I pray that each one of us here, uh, regardless of what we think about Jesus, would feel welcome in this place, welcomed by you, and Lord, that we would uh, hear what you have for us today. So we love you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Obadiah. Um, it's, it's only a couple pages long, and so if you're using one of, our, one of the Bibles on the floor near you, I can help you out. If you're using one with the black border, it's on, it starts on page 656. If you're using the white one with the blue letters, that starts on page 450. So being that it's short, like one of the interesting things about Obadiah is that it is the shortest book of the Old Testament. We'll also have the text on the screen today uh, if you need that as well. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these with you. That's our gift to you. Um, but Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's very short. And so let's just jump right in. I want to get through this. It's really exciting. Uh, let's, let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Obadiah to kind of get us introduced into who Obadiah, who Obadiah is, what's happening in the world that's being addressed. So we start right here, ver verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, meaning this comes from him and through him, as the Lord uses him as a prophet. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her, that's Edom, for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And so we see that Obadiah is bringing this prophecy, that this really this kind of poem of divine judgment against the people of Edom. And so this proclamation is addressing Edom. Uh, and so there's, to, to kind of give us some background, just because it's helpful, there's not much known about Obadiah. Obadiah was a prophet. We don't know if he was a professional prophet. It seems like it. His language is pretty refined. He's familiar with kind of the high prophet language. He uses a lot of Jeremiah. So, but but we, there's not a lot known. And so we, we, we see that his 
He's here. His name is here. It's Obadiah. We know that his name means worshiper or servant of Yahweh. Uh, Obadiah itself was a pretty common name during the time. We see it happen throughout Scripture a good bit. But it's, it, it's probably, this Obadiah is probably not any of the other Obadiahs you see referenced, just to kind of give you some bearing. So what we see here, uh, and also thinking about the time frame and what's happening in culture, there's also kind of some, a little bit of scholarly disagreement of when this was written, but it was most likely, and most would agree, that it was written right at about 586 B.C., and the reason why we know that is because it seems to be written in response to the, the Babylonian conquering of Israel. And so what we do know through history is that from 588 to 586, there was this this, this constant attack by Babylon. They were, they were at the gates trying to overrun, and finally in 586, they did. And so this seems like it's in response to that moment, so that's why we would say pretty confidently that this happened right about 586 when Babylon finally overran Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Obadiah is a unique prophet because the prophets were called of God, the God of Israel, and he was from, he was from, uh, from, from Israel, Judah to be specific, but he is unique because his prophecy is against a foreign nation. Edom itself is, is, a, is a neighboring nation just across the Dead Sea to kind of the east-southeast of Judah. So just some interesting things here as we see his shortest book written right about the time that Jerusalem was overrun by Babylon as they're running for their lives. It is written to a foreign nation. So who is Edom? This is helpful as we get to kind of our takeaways for the day. Who is Edom? Edom itself, they they have a shared ancestry with Israel. They are descendants of Abraham, the, the receiver of the covenant, right? So Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had twins. Their twins' names were Jacob and Esau. And this relationship between Jacob and Esau was contentious from the beginning. Like from the beginning. And when I say beginning, I mean like in the womb. In Genesis 25, there's this moment where Rebekah's like, man, I mean like they are going at it. Like I remember when Amber was pregnant, like seeing one child's like, hand, like foot move and a ripple go across her stomach and it was like aliens. Like into things like there were literally like two little little boys in this belly of Rebecca like wrestling. They are going at it. They are they are against each other in the womb. And then Esau comes out first and he says he's hairy and that's cool. He's red hair. And then as he comes out, there's a hand holding on to his heel. And so again, just this contentiousness, Jacob is holding on to his hill, and if you were to go on and read Genesis 25 and through 27, you would see this relationship between Jacob and Esau. There's a lot of shadiness, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of deceit, and all this goes on, and they just don't have a good relationship. Well, let's, let's, let's go forward through time a little bit. Jacob gets renamed to Israel. Esau gets renamed to Edom, and nations come out of them that are representative of them. And, they, and so we see that there is actually a shared ancestry with the people of Israel and Edom. And so, it's, and so we see even in Numbers 20, this contention continue even into the nations. And so in Numbers 20, when Israel was kind of in the wilderness and they were still trying to find their way and they're fleeing from Egypt and they're weary, they come up to the valley and they're kind of just outside of the territory of Edom. And Moses sends word in. He's like, hey, can we come through? 
We're weary. Can we just pass through your territory? We won't walk through any vineyards. We won't take anything. And they say, no, you cannot. They're like, come on, just please let us, if, if we do drink any water, anything that we have impact on you, we'll pay you for it. And Edom, they don't only say no, they actually assemble their force and stand up on the hills and have their army assembled against them so that they can't come through. So they reject their people. And in that moment, you see this this. This, this judgment against them that God speaks, and he says, but yet they will tarry, it's not their time yet. But there will be a judgment against them. So we see this contention carrying forward. So Edom, their ancestors to the people of Israel, they have a shared lineage from Abraham. They are neighbors, literally just, just not too far away across the Dead Sea to the east-southeast. But, and we see this blad, this blad, that, that reminds me of one of the hardest tongue twisters I know. Do you know this one, the uh, good blood, bad blood? Let's everyone say it. Don't say it. Okay, good. You can't. Good blood, bad blood. See? But there's this blad, blad, bad blood. I just messed it all up by actually acknowledging it. Uh, between Israel and Edom, it continues now. Now, Edom is being confronted for their sins. So what was their sins. Uh, so first off, the first thing that God calls out is their pride, which we see that pride is always the paramount sin. It's the one that leads to every other sin. It's the one that says, I know better than. And it's, it's one thing to say, like when my kids say they know better than me. It's another thing when I say I know better than someone else, but it's another thing to say I know better than God. And so who knows better than God? The eternal one, the creator of all things. And so he's calling them out for their pride. Obadiah 3 and 4 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So this is the quintessential kind of picture of pride coming before the fall. We see this theme over and over again. The, the people of Edom, the Edomites, they had built up their trust in themselves and their position. They were literally finding security in their place. They lived in this high ground, this plateau ground. They lived in the cliffs. There was no way in except for one passage, and it was heavily fortified. So they just had a lot of comfort and pride. And then they not only looked down on those around them literally, but they also, because of this comfort and position, they began to look down on the people around them, especially Israel, socially. They were just literally thinking, we are better than them. And so God is calling them out for their pride. And in their pride, they let, they let malice and ambition turn them in their best moments to ambivalence towards the people of Israel and at their worst to violence. And that's the next thing that we see God confronting in them in this, in this divine judgment poems here that they were, their next offense was, was violence against Israel, their brother Obadiah 10 through 14 says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors. Um, in the day of distress. 
So, yes, Edom is in a key kind of strategic position, right? They have an advantage in their kind of military strategy. They're secure in that. And yet, they're also a smaller people, a smaller nation. So they don't have the military resources to actually go on the offense. They just kind of have the resources to remain safe. So again, in this, this there's an irony to that, that they kind of have this puffed up view of themselves when they actually can't actually exert their power over anyone. Just another kind of facet of pride. But so, so they're, they, they have the strategic position, but they're not big enough to actually go and willfully take anything. So now we see that they have taken this kind of weasley opportunity to enact kind of violence and offense uh, against Israel after they've been defeated and are fleeing from the Babylonians. And in this, when I read this, it took me back to this, this pretty indelible moment in high school and there was this big fight that happened in the hallway. And um, there was, you know, as, as it happens in high school, a circle formed around the fight. And these very cowardly, like it was, a, it was very frustrating because these were my friends that were, I played sports with on our sports teams. These very cowardly guys stood on the outside of the circle. And as soon as the fray would make their way towards them, they would throw in cheap shots against, like, the guys that they didn't like. And, I, and it was just like, I mean, it's, you know, a fight is not productive anyway, typically, right? You know, meet me at the flagpole and, you know, hope it's not Bobby Crookendile. He was, because it was, a twin, he had a twin brother and you get both of them. So, you know, but also like you just see this cowardly, even like this disdainable kind of picture of cowardice. And like, that's, that's the picture of Edom here. Like that, that they, that they, you know, they, they had this disdain and this malice for these people, but yet they couldn't do anything about it. So now all of a sudden they're jumping in on the coattails of Babylon. And as Israel had been overrun, you see in this passage that first off, they just watched it happen. They stood up on the hill and they, they probably gloated. Look at, look at what's happening to, to Judah. Do you see that? Oh man, finally they're getting what they're, what they're due. So they set up there just with passive observance, and that's their first offense. But then it gets worse as Babylon starts to overtake. What do they do? They say, hey, now's our chance. Let's run down and join in. And they start attacking the people, and they start going into the streets as they are bare, and they're starting to loot and to plunder. And then it gets even worse as they're kind of out and about, and as the Israelites, and the, you know, they start fleeing, and we see refugees from this violence running from their place for safety, the Edomites actually capture them. They capture them in their, in their fleeing. Instead of offering them safe harbor, they capture them. For some, they turn over to Babylon. For some, they even kill themselves. They kill the people of Israel themselves. So it's just this, this, this horrible, this putrid moment, like this, uh, this show of, of character, and, and it's ugly. And so we see these two sins being confronted by God to the people of, of Edom, their pride, and then the way that they went and acted against these people that were their brothers, as it said. So before we kind of keep going, I want to take away kind of a key opportunity for the way we live in this world that I kind of see here is, you know, it's not the main thrust of the text, but yet it's an opportunity for us to, to look at our, our world. It's a challenging place to live. And, you know, people, it's diverse, it's diverse in cultures, it's diverse in worldviews, and we, we kind of have this, cult, this kind of reality where everyone's kind of aligning in their tribes of likeness. 
And unfortunately, I mean, that's natural, right? It's kind of natural. But unfortunately, what's happening is that these tribes are saying, they're saying, we can't, you can't disagree with me. And if you do, I want bad for you. It's a zero-sum game. In order for me to win, my perspective to win, you have to lose. For me to be totally victorious, you have to totally lose. And there's this kind of, this, this divide of, of, of desiring harm for others. And what we are invited to and what we have to see, just kind of this quick moment into our reality, is that we must see all as image bearers of God. All people are image bearers of God. Therefore, all people are deserving dignity and respect. All people are deserving to experience the heart of God and the truth of God. You see that there is judgment against them. So there is a truth. There is an absolute truth. There is, I mean, our God is, is the God of all things. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. Um, but yet, we have to actually not just go and enforce the truth of God, but we have to live out the way in the heart of God. And God, even in, and we'll see this play out today, even in his judgment, it is for the good of his creation. And so, yes, there are, we will find ourselves at odds in this world, especially as if, for those who call on Christ. We, I mean, our way is not just of this world. Like we've been, we've been, we, we've been re- restored to what we were created for. Um, but yet we have to enter into every relationship seeing them as God does. Praying that in our, our love and compassion that God's truth would prevail. I pray that we're able to love those around us and see all the way, see all those around us as God does. Those he dearly loves and seeks to know them and to be known by them. And this kind of, this actually kind of brings us to this next verse, verse 15, and, and, and it's, it's, in a sober, it's a sobering verse and calls us to this place of humility and how we look at others and, and ourselves, and it shows the scope of God's will and desire for this world. Obadiah 15 is the hinge verse between these, these judgment proclamations against Edom and what God is going to do and then about what God is going to do with all the nations, not just Edom, but all people and all nations. It also brings in a common theme that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. So let's unpack that real quick. Obadiah 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So you catch that? For the day of the Lord is near, following all that's been said to Edom. But he says, Upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. So first off, this theme I'm talking about that we've been hitting a few times, this is it's the day of the Lord. And to remind you, you know, we, we asked a couple weeks ago, what comes to mind when you hear this phrase, the day of the Lord, and it was a resounding response of judgment. And it, that is absolutely true. It is the day when all judgment comes to bear. But we also have been talking about how it is also the day, in God's judgment, is also the day that he keeps his promises. And so what we have seen, we saw in Joel that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what we see is for all those who call on the name of the Lord, the day, the day of the Lord is a day of hope. And all those who don't, it is a day of woe. But yet we see God's heart. Uh, we, we've seen it every week and we're going to see it again this week. His heart is that it is through his people that all the nations would know God. 
that through the blessing of his people, all the nations would know the blessedness of God. So when we see upon all the nations, God's judgment will, is not just on Edom here. He's saying, but hey, he is now extending it. I will treat the same of all nations, not just Edom, not just Israel, but everyone. And he says, your deeds shall return to your own head. And this is God's, this is God's justice. You can either rely on him and follow his way, or you can rely on something else. And this is the call to repentance we've been talking about, to turn away from what you have trusted outside of our creator God and turn to him. And the gospel is to turn away from, from earning your way to accepting the provision of grace in Jesus Christ. So he says, your deeds shall return to your heads. Here it's quite literally like the way that you have treated will come back to you. And this brought an interesting reality to mind for me. Um, there seems to be a perspective in our world today that something is only true or bears authority over you only if you acknowledge it as such. Does that make sense? There's in our kind of postmodern world where we each kind of get to define our truth, for God to say, my judgment is going to come upon you, there's this idea that, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that because I don't believe in that God. But what we see here in the claim of Scripture, the claim of all history, the claim that we are living under today that is actually an invitation is that if God is indeed who he says he is, if he is the above all things, creator and king authority, if he has these, all of this is who he is, then it doesn't matter if you acknowledge it or not. You are under that authority. The people of Edom said, we are not worshipers of the God of Israel. And yet he is telling them, you are under my authority and you will experience my justice. If you call on my name, you will be saved. If you don't, you will experience this woe. And so we see this, it's, this really jumped out to me, and, and, and you know, kind of, it's this idea that truth is truth whether you acknowledge it or not, and I was thinking about gravity with this, right? Like, in, in, on, on the earth, gravity is a, is a reality of truth. I can, if, if I don't understand gravity, if I've never heard about gravity, or if I deny that gravity is real, if I were to climb up into these raptors and step off, step off it's not going to be pretty. Gravity is going to have its effect. If I've never heard the word, if, I, if I'm confused at how it works, or if I just deny its reality, it is still going to exact, it is still going to enact its reality upon me. You know, it's, it's this, uh, so authority is authority over you if it's authority, right? I love a phrase like that because it sounds like something, but is it something? But, you know, it, it took me back to when I was a kid. Um, my mom was going out of town, and she sent us to stay at my grandmom's. And um, I, was, I, was just probably, I was probably around eight-ish, I don't know. But uh, the night before she goes out of town, she says, uh, hey, you're going to have Brussels sprouts. I was like, I hate Brussels sprouts. So I'm not going to eat the Brussels sprouts. And we had this argument. And then finally she was like, have you ever had Brussels sprouts? And I said, no. And she said, well, I'll tell you what. If you try a Brussels sprout and don't like it, you'll never have to eat one again. So that sounds like a good deal because I, I mean, like, so she gives me a Brussels sprout. I honestly don't remember what it tasted like, but I remember my reaction. It was choking. It was gagging. It was falling on the floor and kicking. It was very dramatic. And she said, okay, you never have to try a Brussels sprout again. So then the next day I get dropped off at my grandmom's house. 
she's making dinner. What does she make for dinner? Not just Brussels sprouts, boiled Brussels sprouts. Yeah. It was, a, it was one of the trials of my childhood. We boiled every vegetable we ate, which is why I only ate canned green beans until I married Amber. So, but she makes boiled Brussels sprouts, and so she puts them down in front of me, and I was like, oh, oh, by the way, um, my mom said, I don't ever have to eat Brussels sprouts again. And she said, well, I'm not your mother, and she's not here. So I was like, you're not my authority. My mom's my authority. But she was like, I am your authority. And it began the great Brussels sprout standoff of 1984-ish. I'm not quite sure what year. And I sat there for a long time because I was denying her authority, but she won. I ate Brussels sprouts that night, and it was very, I mean, it still sticks with me. Actually, I love Brussels sprouts now, just so you know. But this, there was this moment, like, I denied her authority, but yet it existed over me. I had to do what she said. So it's just this, this is the reality. And so regardless, so I want us to hear this. You know, I know that we all come into this place, into this room today, kind of with different paths, maybe different views of God, maybe different views of Jesus and the claims of Christ over your life. I just want to kind of submit a thought to you. If... God is who he says he is, the creator of all things, the ruler of heaven and earth, and in who he is, he is good. His authority is over you, regardless if you say, I believe it or not. And I I want you to hear the invitation. He says, so in my authority, I am wanting to, to restore you. And so consider that today, and, and, and maybe again, this kind of this message is a humbling, a call to being humbled, is to consider, is it, is it a gift to be humbled before a mighty God who is good? It is. So be in awe of the majesty and immensity of God, and also be drawn in by the invitation to repent, believe, and be saved. So judgment here is spoken to Edom. Obadiah already described the consequence earlier that we skipped. So let's go back and read it real quick as we kind of hear what's going to happen to Edom in verses 5 through 9. It says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Were they not still only enough for themselves? He's saying like, hey, you know, say thieves come, they can only carry what, they, what their hands can hold. And then he goes on to this next picture. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? And he's saying like, hey, there's only so much time for them to do their work. If they were to take time to pick every grape, the rest of the crop would spoil before you got to it. So they, so they pick and they take what they can, but there's always some left. But he's saying my judgment will be complete against you. There won't be these little remnants. I will take the time to do, to deliver justice for the sake of my promises. So then he goes on. He says, how Esau has been pillaged. Now we're seeing the picture of what is to come. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. I will not on that day declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. says, will I not, sorry, will I not on that day? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, Hotiman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by my, by, be cut off by slaughter. So there's this sad irony in what's coming here because you see what they did. They threw their lot in with Babylon. 
And now we see the very ones who they aligned with are the ones who are now overrunning them. The ones that they have said, hey, we'll feed you, we'll take care of you, are now the ones causing them to starve. The ones who, who, uh, that they have kind of turned to for safe harbor, they're the ones that are pillaging them. So we see that they've been conquered by the very ones they threw their lot in with. So we see, we see this, this sin being called out by God to Edom, that they were prideful, and, that they, and in their pride and maliciousness, they went and enacted violence against the people of Israel, which were also their brothers. We see this, this, this picture of, of dread and judgment coming against them. And now God continues to speak his sovereign will above all nations. And as we see over and over again, this act of, of wrath and judgment is, is never the end in the way that God works. There is a remnant in the refuge of Mount Zion that we see, and the oppressor will be brought low. Obadiah 17 through 18 says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and they're speaking of the people of Israel now, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This was about 586, and right at 100, it only took 100 years for all this to take place. And by just 100 years later, there was nothing of, of Edom as a sovereign nation left. They were scattered. So we see this followed through. And not only will the oppressors be bought low, but there will be a day of the restoration for Israel to an even greater place. 19 through 21 says, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors or deliverers shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so if, you don't, if you're not familiar with all the geography, all these things listed, they're the areas around Israel, the Philistines and other nations, they're, those, they're opposers, they're enemies, and he's saying that all of these territories will be given. And this is a picture, you know, as we see over and over again, a picture of not just restoration to what they were, but an even greater restoration. And this is a foreshadowing of the greater restoration in the Christ to come. We see that promise fulfilled. And so there is this picture of they will be restored. And so it, just make sure to take this in. Why is Israel, why is Judah experiencing what they did in this moment? Why are they being overrun and defeated? What's been, what's been happening in, in the past few? Amos, Joel, and Hosea, look, thinking of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're experiencing this because they sinned against God over and over again. They denied who God was. They denied who they were created to be over and over again. They turned to foreign kings and foreign lands as their provision and refuge instead of their God over and over again. They set their law up as the way instead of the law of God over and over again. Because again, catch this, the law of God is not just about the letter of the law. It's about the heart of God. And so it wasn't just about upkeeping your, your demands of the law. It was about living out 
the law, the, the heart of God. And so over and over again, the people of Israel, and over and over again, they've been warned. I mean, think about the past few weeks, if you've been here, how God says, I called you, I have called you in my repentance. I want my, my, my calling to you to repent is one out of love that I want you to turn and avoid this. I want you to be restored. I want you to remember why you were created. And so they are experiencing this because that day of the shoe dropping of judgment has finally come, as we have talked about. The day of just saying, okay, I've tried to tell you, I've tried to invite you to something better, and I've just got to let you go down this road. I've just got to let you experience what you're pursuing. But we see that in this wrath, in this judgment, that there is compassion, that God keeps them. There's this promise of a remnant restored that God keeps them from going headlong all the way into destruction and oblivion. He preserves a remnant of a people. And so we see this is such a beautiful promise for us today. This story of hope and this story to restore for Israel is, is, is amazing. Because again, this, to say this was a prophecy to Edom, they probably never heard it. This was spoken in Jerusalem for those who were lingering in these days. It was an, it, this, this divine judgment poems for Edom were meant to be a message of hope for Israel, of saying, yes, this is happening to you, but remember my promise. There will be a day when you see it fulfilled. There will be a day when, when you are restored. So there's a clear truth in the application for the Israelite hearers of the time. It was have hope. It was, trust in me, the Lord says. This is meant to be a comfort. Yes, right now you are under affliction. Right now you are displaced. Right now you are confused and running. But I will keep you and I will restore you. Don't miss God's heart for all creation. Israel, as his chosen people, who by his covenant of grace, will, they will always be restored. It is still meant that through them, all the world would know the blessedness of God, as we've already said. Through their blessings, all the nations were meant to know God. Again, as we said earlier, Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God commits to restore his kingdom and this kingdom will be filled with the faithful remnant and will expand to not just include them, but to include all of the nations who call on his name, all of the people who call on the name of the Lord. And we see even, as we looked at last week, Amos 9 actually tells us there will be a remnant of Edom. 9, 11 through 15 of Amos. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And so if you think God is a petty, vengeful God, see his compassion and grace right here for everyone, not just the insiders. Over and over again, go read through the Old Testament. It is so just vividly obvious of how much God's heart is for the outsider. Even this picture of Esau and Jacob, the fact that Jacob was the one in which God made his, his, his covenant 
and his, this prophecy that it would be through him that the nations are blessed, it was only kept by God's grace. Jacob was despicable in so many ways. But yet by God's grace and his commitment to keep his promise, we see that through that, there actually did see the people of Israel come from his line. There's also a clear truth for us personally. Just as there were oppressors that brought death and took the people of Israel captive, there is an oppressor that takes us captive and brings death for each of us. And that, that is sin. God is a holy, righteous God and created us out of love for his holiness and righteousness. And the word sin itself is just this metric term. It's the missing, it's, a, it's an archery term. It's the, word, it's the word for missing the center. And it's anything outside of the center of the mark. So you can be here and it's sin. You can be off the target and it's sin. It's the same because that is the standard of a holy God who created a people to be his holy people. And as, we, and as we rebelled, sin entered the world, and we, are, we all carry that mark, and therefore we also carry that curse and that burden, and that sin stands against us. It holds us captive. It chases us down. It cuts us off. It turns us over to the enemy. But there is a Redeemer. Even as we live in the judgment of our sin, we live in a fallen world. We live in fallen bodies. We taste death. We taste sickness, we taste the sting of this world, and yet we're not left to it. Just as the people of Israel could trust in their deliverance by God, we have a deliverer, a redeemer, a rescuer, and his name is Jesus. Ephesians 4, 7 through 8 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led the host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And this is a picture of a conquering king rescuing a people and leading the captives on a victorious, like, kind of, um, you know, parade of, of celebration. That's the picture here. We are the captives that have been rescued. Colossians 2, 12 through 15, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this picture in Obadiah is a picture of no less than saving faith. The theme of the prophets that we've talked about is this, this cycle of judgment, repentance, and mercy. As we said earlier, and as we've said every week, repentance is nothing else than saying, I am not trusting blank, I am turning, and I am trusting God's provision of grace. For the Old Testament, it was trusting God. For us, we see that God has fulfilled all that in Christ, and we say that I trust Jesus. He took on my sin, he took on my death, and he conquered it and rose again, and I have new life in him. That is saving faith. Nothing else. 
The Israelites trusted in themselves and found themselves defeated. The Edomites trusted in themselves and found that they were brought low. We have a rescuer that gives us his, his deeds instead of us being measured by ours. So instead of our deeds being returned to our own heads, Jesus took our deeds on his head and bore them on the cross and defeated them in that resurrection. So we have the same comfort of Israel here in Obadiah while we live in this world that is full of trials and struggles. And, we, and when we think about this, think about it very personally. There are things that, there are ashes that we weep on our own heads as we, as we choose disobedience, as we choose the lesser, and we experience the very direct consequence of denying the grace and love and truth of God. But there is also just the burden of every day Every burden of this world is a result of that sin. And we experience it. It may, may not be something that you have done directly, but the burden is there. And so while we live in the reality of the burden of a fallen world, we also know that we have the promise today of hope. We have one who defends us and defines us, and that is Jesus. We have one who has delivered us, one who's restored us to life together with God we are not our circumstances. We are not our failures and achievements. We are claimed by God in Christ, and in him we are more than conquerors. We are free today, not someday far off. We are free today. So right now, if you have not called on Christ, if you have not surrendered and confessed and trusted him to be your Redeemer and Savior, you live under the dread of your own sin. Hear that there's a Deliverer and that loves you and doesn't want to leave you in that condemnation. He gave himself to restore you, taking on flesh, coming into our need. Surrender and call on Jesus today. This week, if you're a Christ follower, if you've already done that, as you live in the difficulty of this world, hear the proclamation of promise and hope in the completed work of Christ. Take your sin seriously. It is no longer your identity, praise God. It is just an activity of your life. Don't let it define you. Don't let it rule you because you are victorious. Take it, hold it captive, bring it to the Lord, bring it to the light with others, and enjoy his grace while continue to surrender and saying yes as the Lord leads. You are free and alive today. And there will be a day when there will be no more sickness, pain, or death when Christ comes to reclaim his people. So we want to live in our promise of Jesus and live out our promise in Jesus. So live with the confidence that is yours in Christ and just as the blessed people of Israel were meant to be a blessing to all the earth, let that promise be a blessing to those around you. As you love, as you have been loved. As you show mercy, as you have been shown mercy. As you forgive, as you have been forgiven. As you give with the abundance of grace and the richness of mercy that you have experienced. What a beautiful invitation. What a beautiful life. Like It is not our achievement, but Jesus's. It is not what we accomplish for him, what he has done for us, but what he is doing in us is his way in which we get to see the world know the goodness and glory of God. Let me pray. Man, God, what a humbling 
and empowering reality, the work of Christ in our lives. God, I pray as we think about people of Israel, people of Edom, of all nations, of all creation, Lord, that we would uh, be humbled, that we would see and, and take seriously, Lord, the effects of, of turning away from your good will and your good way. Lord, to know that you as the creator of all things, who created all things good, created all things to work together, created all things whole, Lord, that your heart broke and is breaking, Lord, when sin entered in and fractured all of this, and in your grace and mercy, you have put the work in place to restore in Christ, and Lord, you are, you are not leaving it with that. You will bring us all back to you. God, I pray, uh, Lord, that we would each walk humbly but boldly in this life. God, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray right now that you would penetrate hearts. I pray that you would give courage to surrender. Lord, let us see the joy of seeing the futility of our hands and what we can accomplish for ourselves, but Lord, seeing the joy of using our hands to point people to you as we have been transformed by you. God, I pray for this time of communion. Continue to just uh, speak your truth and gospel to us. Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.